Hey, welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. This is a podcast uh, where we like to have conversations that are not watered down, that are foolproof, so to speak. This is episode two of season two, and I'm really excited about our guest today, Micah Caswell. Micah is the lead pastor at Redeemer Church in Denton, Texas, uh, where he planted in 2013. Uh, he has uh, five master's degrees, working on a second doctorate, um, and so we're going to get to talk about his obsession with with that, right. and uh, and what what his almost neurotic behavior is with right. education. Um, he <laughs> teaches biblical worldview at Denton Calvary Academy, and is also a certified biblical counselor. Uh, married to Kristen, has two kids. Uh, Micah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, man. I'm really blessed to to be here and that you'd ask me, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to today. That's great. We're doing something uh, unique with a book that you've written, um, and so we uh, we we're actually doing a giveaway. We're doing a giveaway with a yep. book that you've written on Thomas Patient. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm I'm uh, excited about the new book. Um, yeah, so we we have some extra copies that. Um, H&E, the, the publisher, is letting us get out. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd love for folks to read it. I, I, we'll talk about it more in, here in a minute, but it's uh, Thomas Patient is somebody that no one knows about. He's very much an ordinary Christian and in many ways kind of lost to history. And uh, so it's fun in that way that uh, it, it'll probably be uh, something new, uh, a topic that you hadn't wrestled with before you're reading it. Um, it's also not a massive book. Um, it, it's, it's historical, so there's a lot of... Uh, primary source stuff cited, but it, but it is a neat story and I think very readable uh, for, you know, a pastor, but also also a lay believer. So, yeah. That's great. And if you want to be entered into the giveaway, um, all that you need to do, there's two ways to do it. Um, you can either do it on Facebook, you can comment on this video, wherever it's, uh, wherever you're streaming it, um, or you can comment on YouTube. And by commenting, we'll just enter you in the giveaway and we'll be announcing those winners um, at the end of February. So comment before then, uh, to be entered in the giveaway. Um, well, one of the ways I like to start off the show is really, and, and we kind of mentioned already hearing more people, more about people's academic journey, their story, uh, dissertations, all that kind of stuff. So why don't we start with kind of the latest thing you're working on, which is your, uh, PhD at Midwestern. And that's, that's on Martin Lloyd Jones. Is that correct? Yeah, I th- I'm I'm still early in the process, but I'm I'm pretty committed to going that direction and some specific things uh, with his preaching. Um, yeah, I you know maybe to I always feel kind of rattled when I have to admit how many degrees I have, but um, you know it's it's kind of been a, a strange journey, and I don't know if this is helpful for anyone, but um, I mean certainly you know you can put me in a category of a lifelong learner, but um, you know early in you know in ministry and kind of that. MDiv stage, my wife and I really had a had a perspective that, hey, if if I was going to law school or, or med school, it would be that would be my full time job. We would focus on it. Uh, we kind of delayed uh, starting a family and Kristen taught school and, you know, uh, took care of us. And I worked part time at a church, but we just kind of treated it like a full time job. And so I took May terms and winter terms and went in the summer and, and that sort of thing. And so um, anyway, we did a, a lot of work then. But then once we got more into full-time ministry, um, I just found that that season of life was good for my soul. And so we kind of landed on, hey, if it if it really does help our ministry and it's affordable, we don't want to go in debt on it and it doesn't harm our family in any way. Like if you're, you know, gone all weekend, you know, working on stuff and there's no family time, then we don't want to do it. Then uh, those were kind of our 
criteria. And we kind of caught what I think was a neat wave um, in seminary education where it was very tailored towards pastors. And then, you know, online education came and, and, and all of these things. So um, we've been able to do that. And so I don't, I never take like full loads of things, but I always take a class at a time. And so we We'd rather spend the the monies that we have to go to conferences and things. Is I I just take a class and you wake up and I have too many degrees. But um, yeah. So <laughs> anyway, if you're a pastor, I just plug along and take things that are encouraging to you. And and yeah. So that's great, man. Uh, particularly with Martin Lloyd Jones, what is it you know with this latest kind of uh, research you're pursuing? What is it that really sparked your curiosity on Martin Lloyd Jones? Um, I have for, for about three years, almost every day I was listening to a Martin Lloyd Jones sermon. So as I was driving around, that was kind of part of my devotional life and just love Lloyd Jones, uh, find him to be a really helpful model, uh, for expository preaching. And so I feel like my calling is, um, as a pastor theologian, not a theologian pastor, but, um, and so I, I really found his preaching not only just encouraging to me personally, but also a helpful model uh, for what expository pe- preaching can and should look like. Um, so I was a fan and, and blessed by him and loved his story. Um, and during the, the not this, uh, this past election, but the first one, the first Trump election, um, just as a, as a pastor and a Christian for the, I think for the first time, it was very complex on how to navigate uh, that election, obviously. And so we found at a staff level, just about every staff meeting, it was like a permanent, you know, point on our agenda. Okay, do we address this controversy? Do we address this issue? Do we address this person in our church or in our community that said something crazy on social media? How do we address those things? If we address it, what do we say about it? And so it was just, it was a real challenge, I felt like as a pastor, uh, to navigate the political moment. And so anyway, in that, um, I, I stumbled upon not only Lloyd-Jones' Romans sermons, but his treatment of Romans uh, 13. Um, and so, and also in those uh, years and that period, I was surprised by how frequently uh, Lloyd-Jones referenced political issues that were going on around him in his preaching. And so I've I kind of lean towards, man, I don't want to have any sort of politics in my sermons. And I, and you know, we worked hard, not, I don't want to be the political pastor or the political church. And so there was a real tendency to not address anything. I mean, that was my knee jerk in my heart. Golly, let's talk about the gospel and avoid what's going on around us. And, and I think there's some healthiness to that, but with Lloyd Jones, he was doing something slightly different in the fifties and sixties. I mean, he was, pretty aggressive about um, pacifism and uh, a, a real kind of left view of uh, of nuclear weapons. He did not like that. And he was he was he was speaking to that in his sermons and, and on top of ecumenicism and things like that. He was addressing the political moment, uh, but he always did it very thoughtfully in a very fair way, recognizing, hey, you can be at different places as a Christian on these issues. Uh, but then there were times where he did really jump on some. So pacifism, for example, um, he kind of blew up uh, Christian arguments for pacifism. Um, and that mm. was in kind of the diet of a Sunday morning preaching, which I, it just wasn't the approach I was taking, which, which stirred uh, my curiosity of his treatment of Romans 13. So I, again, I'm early in the process, but I'm, I'm curious to, 
his method uh, of, of treating uh, political issues specifically in Romans 13. So that that's kind of my early stab at a project. So. I love it. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to see what, what work you do there, what you discover there. Cause I know it would be helpful for me um, as, as I similarly uh, try to address issues. You know, we're both in Acts 29 and we have a similar yeah. missional ethos about how the we trial. talk about the world. The um, and so, uh, see, I'm really excited that you're doing that. Uh, work. You know, one of the things with Lloyd Jones, he's a curious guy to me. Um, and one of his books, I think it's, I think it's one of his, but one of the more famous books. I can't remember the name of it right now. He talks about how uh, sermons shouldn't even be recorded on cassette and distributed. Mm-hmm. Um, he he seems to be a very stubborn fellow. Like there's mm-hmm. stories of him, whether it's bombs falling or or uh, mm-hmm. or maybe it was like he was preaching in Pennsylvania and the power went out and he just kept mm-hmm. preaching as if nothing mm-hmm. happened. Um, which on the, on the one hand, you're like, that's awesome that you're that way, but it's also a little intimidating, um, Mm -hmm. as a guy. One of the things he is famous for though, is, is kind of this concept of logic on fire. There was a uh, Mm -hmm. documentary about his life. Um, talk about that, that idea of preaching as logic on fire. That's what he, uh, how he described preaching. What did he mean by that? Um, Th- that's a phrase he uses in his his book on preaching, which were a series of lectures he gave at uh, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, you know, he a, a lot of that was is that, you know, he he called it a message. But in in the message of his sermon, that needed to be a kind of a, a they, they needed to be ideas that connected and flowed and went in a direction. But in a, in similar to kind of the Puritan model of preaching it really does kind of climax at the end with the application. And, and that was his approach. And I, I really buy into that and, and hold to that as well. But he, he climaxes with preaching how this then applies. And so, you know, you, you and I are from Texas. And so maybe um, we listen to his sermons and you're like, man, that's fire for him. But he, you know, because he's Welsh and British, he's maybe a little more buttoned up than, than we are. But, um, but that was fire. For, and, and, anyone would say, oh my, you, you know, you're stirred at the end of his sermon. So if, even if you track the volume of Lloyd Jones's sermon and I've, this is nerdy, but I've done this a little bit like, okay, at this time in his sermon, you, you he begins to speak louder and, and the pace quickens and, and, but that wasn't a contrived thing for him. Sure. All the re the reasoning, if you will, up to that point led to these very important points that he wanted that congregation to hear. So he was a very, he was a pastor first. And so mm-hmm. he's logical, he's thoughtful. Maybe some people think it's hard to track them, but, but he was a, his point was he wanted to then apply that text and that reasoning to the congregation. And when he was doing that, um, you know, he, he's, he's excited at that point. I mean, he's excitable in that way. And he's, you know, so that's the fire of it is he's calling people to repent and believe and, you know, and those things. Um, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Like I said, I'm really looking forward to whatever research you do on it. And, uh, yeah, thank you. And I'm sure my, uh, the listeners here would, would love to hear it as well because it is a really important thing. Um, I've started to explore a lot of different concepts from theonomy to other issues, mm. uh, just because I feel like I've been so, uh, maybe oblivious, maybe trying to ignore the issue, um, mm. and just haven't given it enough <coughs> attention. And so I'm, I'm really excited for, for what you're researching. One of the things that you brought up with Lloyd Jones is kind of his pastoral heart. Um, 
and any pastor knows this, that uh, part of your uh, your job is going to be counseling people, um, mm. whether it's, uh, you know, licensed counseling or not, uh, just pastoral counseling, meeting with people, helping them uh, with 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 their life, navigating complex issues they're facing uh, with a biblical uh, perspective and a pastoral heart. And that, that kind of gets into one of the, I think you got a degree in, in biblical counseling. Is that correct? Yeah, I, that, that is correct. I, maybe the, uh, the journey there was, is I, I don't feel, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm a good biblical counselor yet, but I think early on, I, I felt like it was a real weakness. And so I, I would, you know, go to a conference or I do some training and I eventually got a, a certification through the association of biblical counselors, uh, but I've done some training through, um, ACBC as well. Uh, but, but again, you know, seminary just had a program that was affordable, very tailored to a pastor, uh, because I had done, you know, an MDiv and things before much of it transferred in. And so it, it was just kind of a, a, an easy thing to to do. I think I did, I can't remember how many classes I did over a couple year period, but um, yeah. And it, and it was, it's, it's been really, initially it was so that I could be a better counselor, which I was doing more and I didn't feel like I was being effective. I wanted to grow in that area and serve our people better. Um, and once I got into it, I, I had more of a passion for it. Um, and some of it was just seeing, getting to counsel our people, disciple uh, young men, uh, seeing, you know, uh, especially some, uh, some hard things happen to young men and teenagers. And just, you know, God, I guess, gave me more of a heart uh, for that. And so and more of a passion for it. And um, so anyway, I'm, I'm doing it more regularly now, even in a, a biblical counseling office here in the area and, and really love it. It's it's a it's a real joy. That's great. Uh, biblical counseling has been something I've been curious about as well, um, because I tend to be a, more of a, a logical thinker. People can yeah. perceive me as not caring, uh, mm. um, which is you know it, it's helpful feedback. Uh, and so I've always ha- kind of had a heart to like, you know, I'm a pastor. I want to care for people well. Um, yeah, but uh, kind of in my education at Denver Seminary, they have a, a large imprint in counseling. Um, and a lot of that's helpful. Um, but a lot of it kind of like there was almost a tension between biblical counseling and mm-hmm. some other streams of counseling. And so it led me to kind of study David Powelson, Paul Tripp, mm-hmm. uh, Jay Adams, but also Christian psychologists and other people. So when you're talking about biblical counseling and being certified as a biblical counselor, um, what is it you mean by that? What is biblical counseling? Maybe how is it different than other forms of counseling? Yeah, I mean, you know, as you said, there's there's different streams. Um, I'm I'm comfortable in the category of, of biblical counseling. Uh, I sometimes have to qualify that with people because maybe they've had an experience with someone, and I I maybe view it, an issue differently. Um, but I, but I don't really. Um, although at my degree in it's in Christian counseling, which is was more of an integrated. Uh, approach, but I have certifications of biblical counseling as well. And for me, that was really helpful because I, I, you know, I got to study, um, you know, just the, the normal theories of counseling that every LPC Christian or not uh, wrestles with and kind of chooses, you know, an an approach that they believe in and and that they're going to practice. And so, um, you know, so I'm versed in the DSM five and all those things, which I think is helpful. And we do live in a, a real psychologized culture. And so I think it's helpful to, to understand those issues and as, as people uh, bring them up. And, and I think uh, what, what I tell my clients is I don't, I don't have an ax to grind really um, against those things in the sense that, 
I, I do know the history of them, and I do. Um, I think it is important for Christians to know the history of psychology uh, in general and in this country, um, and, and as it relates to especially uh, uh, psychotropic medicine. Um, I, I, th I think that there's a place for it. I also think it's over medic people are over medicated. And I think, um, we're, we're, uh, in our culture, we're, we're quick to try to medicate, uh, something when it should not be, um, you know, so, and there's an interesting history of even how those medicines have developed. It, it's, uh, it's a very different, um, different thing than, than normal, you know, kind of like heart medicine and, and the process that you get there. Um, right. so anyway, I, so I have some you know, it, it's just not where I am. But at the same time, I recognize, hey, there, I, I believe there's such a thing as bipolar disease. I believe it, you know, and so, and there's a, there's a place for, for the, for taking lithium or whatever it is. So, um, so again, I don't have an ax to grind, but I'm also, that's not really what I do. What, one of the things that I do have a, a real conviction on, and I tell my clients is I, I do believe in that the reality is, is that maybe upwards to, you know, 80 to 90% of why someone comes to a counselor, uh, they're better served by just opening up their Bible and really understanding the process of Christian salvation and Christian sanctification. Those are that uh, are, are most helpful for them. So typically when somebody comes to a counselor, they've, they've had some sort of outburst of anger and the cops have been called or the wife has left and, and we need to understand what anger is and how to manage anger. And, you know, Maybe there's a place for medicine on that one, real extreme cases. But in most cases, it's you need to understand biblically who you are as a person and how what the gospel says to that and how the Holy Spirit helps you that. And then you need someone to bear patiently with you on that and admonish you on that. And so really the, the biblical solutions um, are the are the solutions to, to 80 to 90 percent of why people typically go to counseling. And so um, I have just found what I have learned in that sphere to be way more helpful um, in people's lives as I meet with them. So that's great. W was your answer? Did, were you asking for a definition of biblical counseling? I can't remember. Yeah, but I mean, you kind of answered it. Like you're just okay. sharing your perspective on it, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, I think one of the things that would help me understand is like, uh, there's a, there's a whole stream of kind of biblical counseling, which is like new mm -hmm. counseling. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think the heart behind it was good when it was created. Yeah. Um, the sufficiency of scripture and, and how we need to rely on the Bible. But, but I'd love to hear from you kind of, what are, what are some of the, uh, the liabilities, vulnerabilities in that approach to counseling? Um, I, I, I lean more in, in those directions. Um, but I, I guess, you know, you, you, you just hear of, you'll just hear of an account and it's like, yeah, that's clearly bipolar. Or you'll, you'll hear an account of, yeah, listen, that guy really does need medicine. And so, but, but again, people go to those things quicker than what they should and we're over medicated. And so, um, so I think those are the liabilities is that there's a total closing off to things so like, well, for instance, um, um, this is kind of common for a lot of Christian counselors that they see some virtues in cognitive behavioral therapy, which, which is one of the, you know, the main uh, theories of counseling today. I, I, I find a lot of usefulness in cognitive behavioral therapy and solution focused, focused therapy. So cognitive behavioral therapy, for instance, has a lot of really empirical evidence of, you know, research that's done, that method being applied and seeing real results. And so 
um, I think that there's an aspect of that kind of research that is general revelation. Um, and I find really helpful. And so now I put a, a maybe a, well, not maybe I, I put a biblical twist on that of saying cognitive behavioral therapy, in my opinion, recognizes that humanity has an inner and an outer aspect of who you are. So how you think about things, the perspective you have of it, you, you then, uh, behave accordingly. Well, that, that's not that far. It, it's a different thing, but it, it's not that far away from, you know, um, your your head, your thoughts, your heart, emotions and beliefs, things like that, and then your behavior. And so that's that's what I emphasize, you know, with my clients. I try to put biblical language on it because I think it's helpful. Um, but I think that reality of recognizing the soul, recognizing your perspective of something that we would say believe, what do you believe about that thing that happened to you? Uh, do you believe God was good and sovereign when that bad thing happened to you? Uh, do you believe that you sh should and can to the power of the Holy Spirit forgive that person? Do you believe, you know, so your beliefs, you know, and your perspective and how you think about it really matter. And that drives everything. S solution focused therapy is, is similar. There's some, I think, you know, uh, research that's done on that's really helpful. And, and I even with my clients, I tell them, hey, I, I, I don't really know that you and I are going to be meeting together forever. Like, like, let's identify your problem. What, what's going on? Let's really push into it hard for a season. And then, you know, I want you to see that you're getting better. You know, we, we're going to work towards a solution. And, and so there's, there's some aspects about that theory that I find helpful too. So maybe, so maybe, you know, if you, if, if you kind of cut off all that, you know, and you're, you know, maybe you're not open to maybe some of the good things about it, but listen, uh, granted, there's a lot of negative uh, that comes from those things. So you really have to know how to navigate it well. For sure. Yeah. I think for me in my journey with kind of, uh, you know, I wouldn't call it neuthetic or, or any even biblical counseling, but just kind of the general care that most Christians use or that I grew up with was more of kind of a fundamentalist approach to, mm. um, to sin and problems in your life where if you just memorized enough Bible, yeah. Um, you know, that's going to, that's going to be enough for you. And of course we would all say, yeah, memorize the Bible. That's, that's great. Um, sure. but, but expecting that to be some kind of magic pill that, uh, gets you out of trouble, you know, that's, yeah. that's a really inept approach. My, my first experience with synthetic counseling, that was my takeaway as well is it, it, it had a little bit of in the culture of it, Bible verse a day keeps the devil away. And, and, and re related to that, it could become kind of legalistic in that way and, and judgmental in that way. And so anyway, the, you know, the, the same verse that we, you know, that we all go to uh, for, you know, for preaching is preach the word, Second uh, Timothy 2, 4, or 4, 2. But then it goes on to say, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so I, I do think it's, I think there is a caricature in that world that we're not bearing, bearing patiently, you know, with one another. So we're explaining the scripture and applying the scripture, but I'm finding the more I do biblical counseling, much of it is, is bearing patiently. Sometimes mm -hmm. when I meet with someone, they don't need that. They, they know that Bible verse and they know they actually hold to an Orthodox position of it, but it's similar. And I might, my preaching, I'm, I'm telling our mature Christians, Hey, Sunday morning isn't always about new information for you. It's about, through the sermon, being reminded again of the gospel. And lots of times the counseling moment is that it's just reminding them and listening and praying for them and encouraging. They know the answer, but it's just, and I need that. I mean, I just need to be reminded of the gospel again. And so bearing patiently, um, I think is a huge aspect of, 
a biblical counseling that sometimes uh, we do well and sometimes we don't. Sure. Yeah, I think that's great. One of the things you, you mentioned was uh, kind of cognitive behavioral therapy. You actually mentioned uh, something I'm really passionate about in my book. Um, the podcast isn't meant to be a plug for my book, but no. I, I just wanted to highlight a commonality uh, in my approach to Christian formation with uh, with kind of this idea of head, heart, hands, mm. um, and really how all three are really, in, uh, they're, they're essential, they're, mm-hmm. they integrate, um, and really God designed human development to operate where we are uh, processing with our beliefs, our affections, and our behaviors in concert. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of times uh, I see counseling can get off track is they they really highlight two of those. So like mm-hmm. it'll be like, head and behavior. So believe the right thing, mm. behave. Um, and in other practices, it's way too much, you know, affection. What do you desire? Mm-hmm. What do you, and, and, which is crucial, like essential, mm-hmm. but it can almost be like, uh, we're not going to focus on the behavior or what you believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really think all three of those are, are crucial. Um, I, I think that's a great point too. And I, I, and I think the great point that sometimes we just emphasize two over the three, but Lloyd-Jones was actually good on this, of just recognizing that, okay, the way the way a heart softens, right? It, like, so if someone has a hard heart about something, that's leading to these hand behavior things that are really destructive and sinful. Okay, well, how do you hard, soften the heart? Well, you got to go to, you got to go through the head and, and you have to wrestle. Okay, buddy, stop. Let's go back to the gospel. What, what does Jesus say to this? And how did he treat you when you did this? And so you're dealing with the head there. And what ends up happening is it then affects the emotions. Mm-hmm. And when the emotions are then affected, it then, you know, then the behaviors follow. And so even how those all connect together is very biblical and very important. And, and listen, I, I think that that is the weakness of, of many approaches to modern psychology, where it, it views the human solely as biological. And so it, it, it diverts the importance of reflecting upon these things, backing up and thinking, you know, if you can just take a pill to fix, and I know that's an oversimplification, but if you can just take a pill to fix this, then you never ponder, okay, yeah, but what's my thinking on this that led me there? Right. Um, so anyway. That's great. Um, one of the things that that you're focused on and, and the giveaway today with, with your book on Thomas Patient um, uh, is on, you know, his pastoral ministries, pastoral heart, um, and really your historical scholarship on pastoring and discipleship is really going to be helpful for people uh, on the topic or, or person of Thomas Patient. Um, because I'm not familiar with Thomas Patient, in fact, while I was typing up the show notes, I kept not even spelling his name right. Um, yeah. That's how uneducated I am. Um, I, I'd love to hear kind of a brief synopsis of, of who is Thomas Patient and what did he do? Yeah, I, I saw kind of here on the on the live comments deal in Clary made a comment about the patient. I, I think Ian and myself and Michael Haken, we're, we're the three people who know who Thomas Patient. Probably. <laughs> uh, no one knows who he is. And his name is misspelled all over the place. There's some, okay. uh, there's some uh, difficulty on on some of that. Sometimes it's spelled patient and sometimes it's spelled patients. Uh, okay. I think he I, I, I think he. He, I think he thought the correct spelling was patient. And so that's why I chose that. All, all that's kind of common with those guys. I mean, he spelled Kiffin or whatever. Um, yeah. So he was, uh, th- there's little known about uh, maybe family of origin and his beginnings. Um, but he, 
and, and much of this is kind of, uh, he opens his book on the doctrine of baptism uh, with kind of an autobiographical sketch of, of a portion of his life, how he began to hold bad, bad Baptist or Baptistic convictions. And he, where you really pick up uh, his life is that he is part of what was called the Great Migration uh, of Puritans to the American colonies, especially in the 1630s. And so he's part of that group that comes. Now, that group is typically identified as um, what we would call Congregationalist or Independents. Uh, most of them were not, um, you know, from the aristocracy, so wouldn't be like kind of the, the mega wealthy, you know, of their day. But they were, um, they clearly were, they were very zealous and, and pious people. Um, and they, they had enough means, you know, to pay for the journey to get over there. Um, so that's, that's kind of probably describes where he's at. When he comes to the American colonies, he says that he holds to the New England way, which, which would have been a, a congregationalist view of baptism or, you know, which was infant baptism. While he's over here, a debate begins to happen on what is now the, the Puritans. That is a, a glorious attempt uh, by people to try to live out a biblical spirituality in a in a biblical view of the gospel and, and then a, a, a biblical ecclesiology. How do we live together? How do we do church? How, you know, these sorts of things, uh, which is, of course, outgrowth. Those are outgrowths of the gospel. And they're connected to our biblical spirituality. So how you, you know, it's, you know, maybe boring big boy stuff on how you choose to organize your church, but it does affect your spirituality. So when he's in uh, the New England colonies, a debate breaks out on what is the most biblical form of baptism. And with an, uh, kind of an honest reflection of that, he moves, uh, he changes his theology and holds to uh, a Baptist form of baptism. Now, this is, I think there's an interesting aspect and a couple stops in his life on, on religious liberty. Um, this is the first one because uh, an, a warrant is issued for his arrest for holding that. So if, if Baptist today, if you think you've got some, you know, some challenges, know that if you were, you know, and maybe that's all of it. Would you hold to uh, believer's baptism if you could go to jail for that? Well, Thomas Patient did. Now he, he flees. I, I found his warrant for his arrest, which was kind of a, a nerdy fun aspect of this that is fun study um and he he and his wife traveled back to england uh they connect with one of the main uh, baptist churches there in london uh, with, with kiffin's church he's probably best categorized as a co-pastor with him patient was older than kiffin um but uh uh while he's there this is um, now early 1640s he is one of the 15 signers of what we now refer to as the first london confession um, oh. and, and, and he's, those were, uh, different churches and they sent represent usually there were, uh, I think one of them, there was three, one church sent three, but everybody else sent two. So he and, and Kiffin signed it together representing their church. Um, and, and, and that what they argue there for, uh, believers baptism and how they explain it, that really is even today, um, our understanding of believers baptism to me, it's interesting maybe how little it's changed. Um, during that time, this is the British uh, Civil War period. Uh, if your listeners know that period, that's an interesting time. Um, uh, Oliver Cromwell uh, rises to power during that time in, in leading uh, the forces against the monarchy. The, the king is killed in that, that time, which is fascinating. And so most of the uh, Puritans, uh, the, the Presbyterians, the Independents, the Baptists, uh, they 
are siding with Cromwell in that and fighting in the army with him. And so he takes England and then he goes into Ireland and he has a very, I think, scandalous and shameful uh, conquering of Ireland. It's very, this is one stop on many stops of, of English brutality over the Irish. Um, and he takes uh, John Owen with him, which maybe a lot of your listeners know John Owen. Um, John Owen rightly sees that there's just not uh, a gospel witness in Ireland. Uh, it's very Catholic, like most of the history of Ireland, uh, but there's just not an, an evangelical gospel witness there. So he comes back to the British British Parliament, preaches a sermon, and calls on Parliament to designate funds to pay chaplain, army chaplains to join the army in Ireland with the goal of spreading the gospel in Ireland. So that's how Thomas Patient, Thomas Patient hears that, heeds that call, and goes to Ireland as an army chaplain. Um, another nerdy point is I found all the the accounting books of how much he was paid, these handwritten books of um, how much he was paid. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, it is. It was, I had to wear gloves in Oxford for that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's how he gets there. And while he's there, he, um, he plants a, a couple of churches. Um, and as Ian noted on here, he's referencing the Swift, the Swift Alley in Dublin. That's the, that's the first uh, Baptist structure church building in Ireland. Uh, he, he plants, plants a church in Waterford, um, and then in Dublin, while he's there, he uh, a controversy breaks out over believers' baptism. So he writes a full-length book um, on believers' baptism, which there had been pamphlets and other things written. But this is one of the earliest, if the earliest, um, uh, full-length book on believers' baptism by anybody. So the title says he's the father of the Irish Baptist. Uh, there, there was most likely, there was possibly one uh, church planted before that in Cork, but it wasn't as directly connected to um, uh, the particular Baptist, but the churches that he planted are still there today, which to me is wonderful. Um, it's amazing. And there, his basic theology is still in place. It's about, you know, kind of a real commitment to Bible reform theology, baptistic theology, but also a, a real evangelistic fervor. And man, that has been in those churches ever since. Uh, the Irish Baptists are incredible, but, but that's kind of his, his life in a nutshell. Man, that that's a great summary and uh, super interesting to me. I mean, from from the issue of believers' baptism in the colonies to, like you mentioned, being uh, being persecuted in a real way about mm -hmm. that biblical conviction, um, lessons to learn there. Then, uh, then really this this uh, civil war and and Cromwell. I named my son so. Um, um, one of my sons is named Owen. The other is named Knox. Um, nice. I've. I hadn't done a lot of, I've read one book by John Owen. I just thought, mm. you know, I was trying to float a list of names yeah. of historical theologians to my yeah. wife yeah. and those fit the bill for ones that she could deal with. Well, um, I tried Hezekiah. I like Hez King Hezekiah <laughs> and my wife shot that down. Yeah, we, we, we liked Knox a lot and, and, and I like Owen too. Yeah. Oh man. Well, that's, that's awesome. Um, his story on believers baptism, really, really interesting because um, at the well, we planted, we helped plant a Presbyterian church, a PCA oh, church, cool. um, but we're not Pado Baptist um, at all. Um, but planting that really helped Thomas us. Thomas Patient would rebuke you for that, man. <laughs> wouldn't put up with that. I know. We live in I different like times, don't we? Like That's it's right. It's so yeah, funny. Very much so. It is um, funny. Yeah. So it's uh, it's an interesting topic because most people today, I guess, don't give much thought to it. Um, but it is a It really shapes, like you said, governance and ecclesiology. Really shapes how we do spirituality. Um, as far as that first kind of London Confession of Faith, did that was that the precursor to that second London Confession of Faith in 1689? 
In, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I mean, it's a it's a shorter confession. You know, there there are streams of influences for both those confessions that are that in many ways are separate. But but it is <coughs> the London is you know is what um, a lot of guys uh, reference more, and 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 I think rightly so. It, it's more thorough. Um, it's more in line with with Westminster. Uh, so so I think a lot of people give it some historical weight in that way. Uh, but but the first London is, I think, is very orthodox and very helpful, and I like how it's structured. It's uh, so it influences it in that it, it is the um, uh, it's the same theology basically. Second is more thorough and has uh, more topics and articles, um, and there are some similar people in on, namely Kiffin, uh, uh, as part of both projects. So he he lived long enough to be part of both. That's awesome. I remember I read the first the first time I read the second uh, London mm-hmm. Confession. Um, I was like telling my pastor friends, I was like, where has this been? Like, this is what I've been yeah. looking for Yeah. as far as a kind of a tool of thinking, of mm. articulating the faith, because at least in, in the Southern Baptist tradition I was raised in, the confessions were just like, what is that? That's, that's not a thing. Um, which is and such a disservice. A, it is. And there's been a, a real anti-confessionalism in, in a lot of Baptist circles, even to today. Um, I, some of that's healthy, I think, but some of it is we just have missed our history and some really useful tools that would be helpful, and in particular to church planters. I mean, um, you know, when you go into an established church, they've got their doctrine set, they have how they function set, you're kind of stepping in running ministries. You know, it's it's a different question, but when you're a church planter, you have to wrestle with all that. What, what do we believe on this? It's more than just what are we naming our church? Are we going to be Presbyterian or are we going to be Baptist? And you need to know where you are on that. And you're going to have people come in and say, hey, I'm Presbyterian. You say, man, the Lord bless and keep you. And we want to have you here. And there's, it's okay. We, we're not arguing with you. We think you're a Christian, but this is how we do it. So are you okay? Are you okay with that? And can you live according to that? And so you, you just have to make those decisions. And a lot of that is understanding the issues around it. And so I think church history is very helpful there. So how does congregation and elders relate what role does baptism serve as kind of a gatekeeper on membership and all those things? So uh, I, I find uh, Baptist theology being able to navigate those tensions, you know, I, I have found it incredibly helpful and useful, not only in ministry in general, but specifically in planting churches. It's been, it's been wonderful having that history to draw from. Absolutely. I remember when we planted, I was like, we were so concerned with name and, and all this kind of stuff. And you, you have sure. to make those decisions. It's, sure. you know, and it may have been overdone, overwrought at the time. Uh, when, when in reality, what I really needed was more of that, that uh, mm-hmm. resourcing um, in mm-hmm. terms of like, hey, this is how the church has done ministry. This is what the church mm-hmm. has believed. This is the faith handed down to us mm-hmm. uh, biblically. Um, so I think that's so crucial. What's something that you might suggest um, I mean, obviously, there's just so much to talk about uh, with Thomas Patient, but what are some key things about his ministry that you might find helpful for uh, for people, whether ministry or church today? What do you think we can learn from him? You know, through uh, writing this, um, I've just gotten to know a lot of the Irish Baptists and and um, have become friends with some guys and, and have talked, you know, we've, you know, just talked ministry and what are they doing over there? Um to my delight, uh, a lot of the pieces that Thomas Patient put together, if you will, theologically, and then how that plays out practically in ministry, um, it has stood the test of time. Now, I've, 
I would say that's because it's biblical and and thus the spirit has been in it. Um, But the brothers and sisters in Ireland, for example, um, they are they're They have put those pieces together and are living those out in a very healthy way. So there's a real uh, amongst the Irish Baptists there's a real um, uh, thoughtful uh, commitment to the word of God and holding to inerrancy and infallibility and, and the role that God's word plays in ministry. Uh, they really have a great everyone that I've engaged with has just a wonderful and thoughtful, courageous uh, understanding of the gospel and how that drives everything. Uh, but then putting together um, uh, Baptist theology in that. But then, uh, but I think sometimes there's a caricature of kind of the reformed Baptist guy that th- they're not good at at um, missionally engaging the lost, you know. And so, you know, and this is this is bread and butter for a bunch of eighteen nine church planters, right? Like this is why we plant churches is to reach the lost. And and those and that was Thomas Patience Hart. I mean, he went mm-hmm. to Ireland. Uh, to see people converted to Christ, and he was broken hearted. He, you know, he wanted to see people converted, and that's why he planted uh, those churches. And the Irish Baptists are still planting churches with that same heart. So those doctrinal convictions are there, but that heart too. I mean, we love our neighbors, and we we want them to know Jesus, and we want to help them get there. and And that's the heart of those brothers and sisters over there. and And to me, again, it's um, it's a neat example of hundreds of years later that vision is still being played out. Now it's not Thomas patient's vision. It's Paul's vision. It's Jesus's yeah. vision. Right. Right. Um, but, but it is neat to, to see that. I think he put a lot of those pieces together. Uh, was very courageous. Um, and, and how, uh, in, in doing, I mean, that's a lot of travel. That's a, that's a, that's very unique, uh, for someone to have gone from England to America, back to England, to Ireland, back to England, you know, um, and planting churches along the way. Uh, so it, it was very courageous of him. Um, to me, I find that very inspiring. Um, and just putting those pieces uh, pieces together and, and then having uh, something that uh, outlives him. I mean, there's going to be a day that I retire and die, and um, I want Redeemer Church to still be here uh, ministering the gospel uh, to our to Denton County. And, you know, Thomas Patient was able to do that. There's some churches he planted uh, that are still there, still pl- those churches are planting churches. Um, I, I find that very inspiring. For sure. And and Thomas Patient really seems to embody kind of this idea that he was something bigger than himself. Um, mm. Whereas a lot of us as church planners, or at least I, I can feel this way, um, we can get kind of so wrapped up in like what we're doing, where we're at. Um, but he seemed to have a receptivity, a conviction about what he believed. He heard a sermon uh, from John Owen in parliament uh and really responded to that call but was able to hold the conviction right and articulate that conviction to equip people um but also kind of like be part of something bigger than himself which i think is really really admirable yeah i um i mean i'm i'm on a esteemed podcast right now, but, um, but uh, you know, I don't speak at com. I'm just, I'm kind of a nobody. Okay. I'm, I'm an ordinary pastor. Um, it's, it's taken me a little bit to be at peace with that. And then <laughs> kind of like that actually, you know, um, and some of that, uh, came from, uh, Dr. Michael Haken, who I think is one of the great uh, church historians of our day for sure. Uh, but he, he has a, he has a, a very helpful idea for me that really the great things that are accomplished in history, it's it's really usually less about the great man theory of history, you know, where Churchill beat the Nazis, you know, or Eisenhower, you know, beat the Nazis. Eisenhower didn't beat the Nazis. The, you know, who beat the Nazis. It was a bunch of no name, 
19-year-old GIs from Iowa who stormed beaches. That, that's who beat the Nazis, okay? Mm. His point is, is that ordinary men and women who share a vision, link arms with each other, and go in the same direction together, that's when great things are accomplished in history, but as well as in church history. And Patient was that. I mean, he is, you know, this is the, I mean, there's, there's been a couple of articles written on him, but this is the first full length book and it's not a long book. Okay. I mean, he's a, he's an ordinary guy, but he, he embraced a vision for a direction. He joined that and went in that direction and God did really great things for that. And, and frankly, I know this isn't a, a commercial for the Southern Baptist convention or acts 29, but um, for me, uh, those two networks in that denomination are that for me. I, I'm, are there imperfections in both of those? Of course there are. They're, they're made of human beings, but those are wonderful things that I'm proud to be part of because they're going in a direction that I believe in. And I think, you know, as Tim Keller notes, that Christianity uh, has a unique ability to self-correct. And I think in both of those organizations, there's been great self-correction when needed. Uh, but at the same time, they have majored in the right majors. And, you know, you and I are part of something that's going in a direction and we're getting to participate and what God's doing here on earth. Praise God, right? Yeah, it's awesome, man. Um, and it's I think that's really encouraging, just as like kind of like you mentioned, for kind of everyday normal people, mm. um, whether pastor or not, listening to this podcast, um, our world can really feel, uh, it kind of goes back into counseling, something I preached on a couple weeks ago. Our world can really uh, reinforce feelings of shame in people because mm. of celebrity and power and really the sense that like we, our voice isn't heard. Um, what we say doesn't matter. What we do doesn't matter. Almost mm-hmm. this nihilism, um, in Christianity and what we're trying to remind each other of, and then remind everyone else of is that the choices you make every day, who you're in community with does matter and it can shape mm-hmm. history. Now, of course you can get these, uh, grandiose thoughts that are, that are probably unrealistic and maybe even unhelpful. But yeah. I mean, like there is, there's something to be said for linking arms with the people that are around you and doing normal things in a faithful mm. direction um, that really impacts society more than um, really having this huge platform mm. um, and, and all that stuff matters too. That's uh, that sure. has its own issues, but, sure, uh, sure. but I think that's a great encouragement to me as, as really over the last, you know, 2020, you, you feel like people are making decisions in far off places that affect your mm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, and you may disagree with those decisions and you're like, I feel powerless. I feel completely mm-hmm. powerless to do anything about it. That's just a really yeah. helpful a reminder for me. So thanks. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah, amen. Um, amen. One of the things that uh, Thomas Paine was part of was the Puritan movement. And and that's something I'm particularly curious about, yeah. particularly with, with spiritual formation and, and discipleship. One of the things that's unique about them is they helped kind of shape the American psyche, the social yeah, uh, imaginary so. um, and really culture at large. Um, it, it, and what I wanted to talk with you about uh, is is this concept of Christian worldview because you, mm. you teach it uh, to seniors at a local high school there, which I think is really fun. Um, Christian worldview is something that I was privy to in high school, but, but really in seminary, uh, Dr. Doug Grotice really helped me kind of embrace mm. kind of that concept. Um, first of all, like what inspired you to go kind of connect with a local high school and teach a bunch of seniors about worldview? Um cynical answer is uh, I was a church planter and needing to uh, support my salary. And a friend said real late in August, 
we just had a vacancy fill. We need somebody to teach Christian worldview. Can you do it? And I, before even knowing what it was, or I said, yeah. And I said, okay, what book are they using? They don't have a material. You got to create it all. Oh, uh, can I take my answer back? And, um, and so it just kind of started there. It was just a, a need that I have, but it did sound fun. Uh, but I mean, within maybe two months, it became a passion for me. And now it's just, it's just ministry and I love it. And it, and uh, yeah, like you said, it's fun. It is fun. Um, and I love my students and I love ca- catching them at their senior, at the senior year of high school. I mean, what a, what an amazing moment in your life where you're wrestling with things. You're about to, you know, fly the coop and make these choices on your own. And so it's just a, you're ready to go, but you're sad to go. It's just all these neat, weird things happening in their lives that are wonderful and then get to talk about all these, uh, you know, very important, you know, issues and navigate the moment. And so that's, it started with maybe a, a need that I had that, that God had a bigger vision for it. And now it's something I'm incredibly uh, passionate about and really love my students. So That's awesome. Yeah. That age is so important. And, and being in Boulder with a, with a college town, really that 18 mm-hmm. year old, if I can articulate oh, in sermons or in teaching to reach an 18 year old, mm-hmm. I, I can pretty much cover a wide gamut of people because mm-hmm. um, that's, that's a really, it's trying to push people to a level of intellectual engagement that mm-hmm. may be a little bit beyond the, the NIV eighth grade reading level. Uh, but it, it really is important. Uh, when we talk about Christian worldview, what is it we're talking about? Like how would you define Christian worldview and why does it matter? Well, every, you know, the, the 101 answer is, is that, you know, everyone has a worldview and there's all sorts of worldviews out there. There's kind of, you know, big, you know, kind of sweeping worldviews like a religion or secularism. But then there's many M-I-N-I worldviews like um, Trumpism or uh, the Democratic Party or, or all the different corners of the Democratic Party, or the different corners of the Republican Party. Those are all different worldviews. So every worldview kind of has to answer or does answer four key questions. Creation, which answers where do we come from? Uh, fall, which answers what, what's wrong with this place? Uh, uh, redemption is, okay, what's our solution to what's wrong? Um, and then restoration or consummation, which is what is the ideal version of the future? Um, and so everyone has a story or, you know, a, a way to answer that. So, for instance, um, this is interesting that m- my students now were born after 9-11. I mean, that was so formative uh, for my generation. Well, there's been a debate on, OK, what's man, how do we get Muslim terrorists flying planes in a building? OK, is there do all Muslim people want to do that? Well, no, they don't. But. What, what is there something in Islam in, that's in that? Well, actually, yes, there is. They jihad has been here since the beginning of Islam, and so. But a secular worldview just doesn't have the categories of believing that people really operate out their religion. Mm. So, what what is it? How does a typical secular person uh, uh, view people? Well, it's about oppression and it's about material. It's about materialism. So what you hear from a lot of secular people on the problem of uh, Islamic terrorism is, well, if it's because they're mistreated and if they had a better, if they had a better economy and if we weren't stealing their oil, then, then maybe they, you know, they wouldn't do that. Well, goodness. I mean, Osama bin Laden had more money than you and me and our churches combined. So it certainly didn't apply to him. It was a religious issue for him. And so, you know, every, you know, so, you know, every worldview answers these things. And, you know, so that's an example of a, of a secular worldview. How are they addressing that problem? 
how are they working towards a solution? I would disagree, obviously, with with, with how they ap- approach that. Um, but we all have these worldviews. But a biblical worldview is answering those questions biblically. We, you know, we come from God. He spoke creation into existence. The problem is not that we don't have an education, you know, education or or some sort of material answer. It's that we sin. We have sin. Um, and the solution is not, you know, uh, getting somebody to read and write or have a good school or uh, have, uh, you know, enough money uh, to have what they need. The solution is Jesus. And because Jesus saves us from our sins um, and then all the wonderful things that come from that. And the ideal version of the future is not that we can vote in a politician to fix all this or, you know, or, or have some law that will fix all this. Politics is important. Who you vote for is important. There's, all those things matter, but not in a, a religious way or an ultimate way. Ultimately, the solution is, is you know, Aslan returns, you know, and, and it's, and, you know, I'm, yeah, so it's, what's, what's great saying that, um, you know, before Aslan returns, it's, it's always winter, but never Christmas. But our, mm. our hope is, is that King Jesus returns and, and it flips that. Um, so th- that's the Christian worldview. That's great. Um, that's a great summary. It's, it's one that I use every membership class. We're teaching mm. how do we answer these questions. Uh, and mm. that gets us into a lot of fun conversations about mm-hmm. uh, transgenderism and, and marijuana mm. and mm-hmm. all sorts of uh, interesting topics for sure. Um, you know, the, you touched on kind of a secular worldview and, and oppression. One of the, one of the questions, I, you know, we've got a few minutes left here that I, I'd be curious to explore with you is, at what point does a system of thinking become a worldview? Because there could be an argument mm-hmm. made that for every person in the world, there's a different worldview. Um, and one kind of uh, kind of uh, lab experiment you could play with is this uh, this topic that's come up in, in, in a strong way lately is critical race theory mm-hmm. uh, derived from critical theory. And some argue that critical race theory, critical theory operates as a worldview. And others would say it's not a worldview. It's just a... A, a tool, uh, whether good or bad, you can debate that. Uh, but how would you help listeners help me understand, does critical race theory, does critical theory operate as a worldview? Is that is that a coherent way to describe uh, kind of that social uh, way of understanding reality? I think a lot, like a lot of things, it can be both. And, and, okay. Um, so I think it can be used as a sociological tool uh, that is helpful. Um, so let's keep it in sociology and, and, and you know, that's maybe my take. Um, I do think, and of course, as Christians, we're purists and, you know, we're going back to the history of ideas and these things, which is right. We're convictional people. So I don't think it's in any way inappropriate to trace the history of critical race theory and see it is really built on some sandy ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, even though um, I, I think there's some usefulness from it, um, I think we have to be careful with it. It, it, is a, it. it is a philosophy of the world. That we, and, and, I, and I think it's in that category. Now, like, like um, for me, and, and this is just me, I'm not an expert on, on critical race theory at all. I'm, I'm like everybody, I think I'm trying to, to learn and navigate these, these issues. But for me, one of the, um, I equate it in some ways to something like cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I think that's a philosophy of the world. Uh, I, I find some things about it that are useful. 
Uh, I don't, I wouldn't say that I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist, but I would say uh, I, I find some things useful about it. And, and I, you know, I use them in counseling if they're useful and consistent with the Bible. Um, and I think a similar thing with critical race theory. I, I think it's helping us look at uh, some realities, um, you know, w- with maybe different angles and fresh eyes that is useful. Uh, I don't believe in kind of a, um, a secular Marxist or socialist view of history that everything is this oppression. And I mean, they totally got uh, theology out of their understanding of things. And even theology itself is just a form of oppression. You know, wait a second. Like, uh, I, I don't think that that's historically accurate or fair, fair-minded at all to put theology as a whole as a form of oppression. Now, can you, can we point to moments where it has been? Absolutely. Is there such a thing as uh, spiritual oppression? Yes. And you and I are pastors and we need to be really careful not to bully or manipulate people because we are in a position of spiritual authority in people's lives. However, as a whole, the, the history of the church is this power play. I mean, I, I, you know, and so there's just some, I think there's some presuppositions that are within critical race theory that I, I find very troubling and I just can't sync with a biblical worldview. But I think it is a good tool to begin talking about racism, systemic racism. Um, I clearly, I think racism is real and still happens. I, it's clearly a sin and we need to say that. Uh, we need to walk with people who have struggled uh, uh, with the pain uh, of racism. I mean, every, every African-American man that I know that's my age uh, just has story after story being pulled over by the cops. I've been pulled over by the cops, but good grief, not not 40 times in 18 months, like a, a man in my church. Right. Um, and, and, you know, where we used to meet, there, there was a man lynched right there in Texas, you know, North mm. Texas. And so it's real, but just because, in my opinion, someone in the Black Lives Matter movement labels something as systemic racism, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I, I don't know. Um, and Sure. But it's so... I'm probably like you. I'm trying to navigate, you know, some of those things. So I, I, I'm trying to learn more about it, but I'm, I'm certainly not adopting it wholesale, but, but I'm not, I'm not saying it's of the devil either. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm more on the side of uh, the lack of redeemability on it, which is, you know, I think this is just an in-house kind of insider baseball conversation, which is kind of why I made the podcast in the first place. Yeah. Honestly. Um, But yeah, I think that the, the conversation of, uh, what you just mentioned is really curious to me with with cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a social <laughs> kind of a social science approach to therapy and then critical race theory. Um, that's the hang up I've had because I use mm-hmm. in pastoral ministry, I use all sorts of tools that sure. when you trace back their roots, well, if we just trace them back to their roots, you know, they, they don't come from a Christian worldview, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so what justifies me using tools. I mean, we could even, we can even talk about sure. the Enneagram in that matter. Right. Yeah. Um, Uh-oh. which is, it's, that, that's it's, real <laughs> baseball. I it know. Right. Way, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm super, well, anyway, I'm, I'm super cynical <laughs> on the Enneagram, I, but, but yet Enneagram is great for me because I think it's, I think uh, a generation younger than me is super in, you know, what are you a four? So, you know, and i just kind of giggle at all that, but right. And, and so, so I, you know, so I'm cynical now. Oh, Enneagram's dumb. But then when I've taken the Enneagram test, I'm like, Ooh, that's, that's really helpful. So, <laughs> so that's funny, but I think yeah. it's a similar topic as far as it how is. Christians perceive the usefulness, helpfulness, or even how we employ different 
methodologies, tools, resources. My argument with with uh, critical race theory is it's not identifying anything I couldn't have identified with without a biblical worldview. <laughs> That's a great uh, point. Yeah. It's like I've got I've got what I the you know, I don't want to harp on the sufficiency of scripture to such a degree to where any any general revelation is unnecessary. There's mm. there's a there's a real uh, necessity of general revelation. We can learn from different disciplines. Um, thank God that we have all these different resources, technology, and stuff from general revelation that we can connect mm-hmm. and know God in mm-hmm. a in a fresh way in that way. But um, gosh, it hasn't revealed anything to me. And in fact, what I've seen it do is create more division, more hostility. Yeah. Um, when I pick up that tool, because really it feels like a, uh, like a sledgehammer. Like I've, I've heard the analogy mm-hmm. of like, um, it is a tool, but what is the tool designed for? Well, it's designed to tear down systems of power and oppression. Right. Um, and so if we start using it in our churches, is it any wonder that we experience more division, more strife? Um, now can, can we talk about racism? Like you said, can we talk about systemic racism? Can we talk about all these topics? Yeah, I- let's do it. You know? Um, Are we, I don't know how much time we have left, but if we're on inside baseball here, I, um, I think a, a, a fair critique of a lot of kind of liberal approaches to these things is they are speaking truth to power in their mind in a way that tears down things. But in re, but in reality, there's somewhere in there, sometimes really clear, sometimes it's not, but that is sinful biblical division in the body at times. So, for instance, when you look at um, like like what um, what the homosexual agenda has done in denominations in America, they've killed them. So, I think that I think they have brought like what what happened in the Anglican Church over the last five years. I think it's shameful, right? And and what was the root of that, right? And so, I think it's appropriate to say, wait a sec, y'all are supposed to live in community with each other. You, you care more about this agenda that you have than you do preserving the unity of Jesus's body. And and I think that that's a fair rebuke of that side and of things. And I think, you know, if the, if critical race theory is used in different ways, I I think the question, you know, the rebuke of, are you being divisive should come out because I think it's very easy for all of us left and right to make our politics, our religion. Totally. And, and, And what happens from that is, division in our religion, a division in the, in Jesus's bride, you know, Jesus's bride is not the democratic party or the Republican party. That's not Jesus's bride. And so if you can't live in unity and communion with brothers that maybe you have dis- disagreements with some of that, you know, then maybe you're making your politics uh, a religion and, and, and right. you're causing division on those grounds. And I think we have a long history of that, especially in the mainline denominations. For sure. And really, I almost uh, shared this with a friend last week, is that uh, really we have Karl Marx in a lot of ways to thank for that, because he believed Mm -hmm. nothing could be pre-political, that everything was political. Mm -hmm. And so now we have a whole generation of people that only when we read certain words online or hear people say certain Mm -hmm. words, we go, what political tribe are you? What tribe are you? And it's like, we can't ever have conversations that are upstream from politics because everything has been reduced to politics and power. Um, right. which is shameful and unhelpful. It is. And, and Marx is wrong on that. And it's been a poison in our public conversation in 2021. Yeah.
For sure. Well, this has been super helpful. Um, I, I love this conversation. We, I, I could keep talking about all these different topics. Hopefully this gives people really a snippet of really what you have to offer. I think you have great thoughts to offer, great uh, presence to offer to the world. And, and so I'm really thankful uh, that we got to have this conversation on this way. Once again, if you want to enter the giveaway, I've got these Thomas Patient books to give out. And it sounds like they're going to be super helpful on a variety of issues in our world. And so if you want to be entered in the giveaway, all you need to do is comment in the Facebook chat or comment on YouTube. Just leave a comment. Uh, the kind of contest or giveaway closes by uh, February 28th. Um, so make sure you comment before then and you'll be entered in the giveaway and I will mail, mail you a copy of this great book uh, that's sure to bless you. Is there anything else that uh, you wanted to plug on your end, Micah, as far as how people can connect or learn more from you? Um, yeah, I'm kind of in the normal places like everybody else on social media. Uh, I have a blog that I haven't, uh, 2020 and was just a nutty year uh, in ministry and life. And so I, I haven't done a lot there lately, but, um, but yeah, just kind of the normal, normal ways you can find me. Um, I think the last thing I want to say is just thank you for the opportunity, man. I really love the show. This has been a lot of fun and a blessing. Um, and yeah, thank, thank you again for letting me be, letting me be on the show today. Absolutely. It was great having you. Uh, if you are a listener and you enjoyed this podcast, I would encourage you to subscribe so you can get these uh, fed to you. I know these uh, come out a little bit irregularly. Uh, I've got a full-time job as a pastor, so I can't be as frequent as I want to. And then if you're on YouTube, subscribe to the channel, uh, hit that notification bell so you can stay up to date when I do release content. Um, and we will uh, we'll be seeing you next time. Thanks so much for being here today.